Hi, everybody. I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon. We want to announce the publication of One True Sentence, Writers and Readers on Hemingway's Art by Michael and me. The introduction is by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. That is coming out by Godin in July of 2022. So please see onetruepod.com for more information, or you can pre-order it at your favorite bookseller. Please also join us on patreon.com slash one true podcast for one true book club, our monthly book club, where we read along with a young Ernest Hemingway. Thank you so much for supporting one true podcast. Everybody enjoy the show. Welcome to one true podcast. My name is Mark Chirino and my producer is Michael Von Cannon. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All you have to do is write one true sentence, write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Today's show takes Hemingway again at his own premise. We ask our guest a very simple question, his choice for Hemingway's one true sentence and why, and then, as Hemingway writes, go on from there. We are delighted to welcome Brian Turner to One True Podcast to talk about his choice about Hemingway and his own writing and wherever else that leads us. Brian Turner is the director of the MFA program at Sierra Nevada College, and he's the prize-winning author of two books of poetry, Hear Bullet and Phantom Noise, as well as the war memoir, My Life as a Foreign Country. He has also edited collections, including The Strangest of Theaters, Poets Writing Across Borders, and The Kiss, Intimacies from Writers. Brian Turner, welcome to One True Podcast. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. And so, Brian, what is your one true sentence and why? Uh, here it is. Then the fish came alive with his death in him, and rose high out of the water, showing all his great length and wit and all his power and his beauty. I chose that one in a sense. I guess if I circled back, I, it, it was, of course, it's difficult to pick a sentence. Um, my first book, uh, Here Bullet, you know, I, I have an epigraph, which kind of starts the book in a sense with the first poem. And it's, it's um, the Hemingway again. This is a strange new kind of war where you learn just as much as you are able to believe. And, and that's had a powerfully profound impact on me. I was in Kuwait at, um, at one point as, as our unit was prepping to go into Iraq. I was an infantry soldier there. And my lieutenant had been an English major at West Point. And so he, he could carry like a footlocker of personal belongings and things like that, maps and whatnot. And in there, he also had a few books, Marquez and others, and he had the dispatches of Ernest Hemingway, and he let me borrow it as like a lending library kind of thing. And so I was reading through there, and that, that particular line really resonated with me because I was about to cross one border into another and go into a combat zone. And so as I was thinking about you know this conversation today, that, of course, came to mind. But I tried to think – I was also thinking, well, when when did – um, not to be too much of a pun, but, you know, when was I hooked by Hemingway? <laughs> and it was in part with some of, you know, some of the boxer stories where, you know, hungry for a steak. And if I just had a steak, I could, you know, I might be able to 
last through the third round kind of thing. And, and I, I remember I, I thought maybe I could talk about when I was a kid, the first steak I ever had because we hadn't been that wealthy of a family. And I remember, I remember in high school, the first time I had a steak was that there was a barbecue at a party that we got we invited to. And I stood by my father and kind of quietly tried to ask him, like, how do I go about this? Like, how how is it should be cooked? And which piece should I get? And he was telling me how the fat tasted so good before I even had one. And I remember that conversation so well. Um, and, you know, that echoes off of Hemingway as well in so many ways. Um, but um, I thought about The Old Man in the Sea, and I didn't read it first. I read it immediately after hearing it, which was uh, Charlton Heston. There's a recording that he did. And my English teacher in high school played it for us. So for like part of a week, we would just go to class and sit there and listen to him. And I went back um, this past couple of weeks or so to listen to that recording and I think he reads it so fast. He did a poor job of it. But when I was a kid, I was mesmerized by that recording and his voice. And, and the, well, I was mesmerized by the story. That's what got me. And I can see now that I'm hung up a little bit on Charlton Heston reading it. But um, uh, the story is one of those ones that transcends whoever's voice it might be um, recited by. And then after hearing that, then the English teacher had us read the book and we looked at it more closely. That that line um, with his death in him, you know, there's, there's life and death at the same time. It kind of circles back to me with my father too, because at the time um, all through childhood, uh, he was an alcoholic and then, and he had this, it was kind of like this battle, the silent battle that he had that was his own and no one could really help him with it. He was out alone in the ocean, you know, in a sense, I didn't really formulate it this way in my mind at the time, but I can see it now looking back. Um, but I, I did after he, when I was 17, he, um, he was able to go to, he went to a hospital, got treatment and he never drank again. And then he, he learned Spanish. He taught himself how to type. He learned flamenco guitar. He became a black belt in karate. He started jumping out of airplanes and getting his, you know, uh, the free fall kind of stuff. And then, um, as he worked his way towards a black belt, which had been a lifelong dream that I knew that he had, um, my family went to his promotion ceremony. And when we were at that ceremony, um, he, I don't know if you've been to one of these before, but it was my first one to, to go to. And, you know, we were gathered around the, the mat and there were several stages he had to go through. He had to do these katas or forms or kind of like dances and stuff. And then at the end of that, he had to do some grappling. There were some grappling things. He had to knock out candles, you know, the, the fire, the flame of the candle. He had to not strike the candle, but knock them out. There was a series of those that he does at the very end of the thing. Um, but the problem was when he got to grappling, he was not a, he was not a large man in, in physical, his physical frame wasn't large, but he, um, for me, he's a huge figure, you know, um, cause he was a huge, huge man inside. And, um, but the problem was, is that he was smaller and the, the bigger guys that he was grappling with were told to go full speed at him but he was exhausted and his grappling skills weren't as good as the, you know, his regular fighting skills. And so he, he kept not passing that stage. And the only way to become a black belt is to pass each stage to get to the end. So if you fail a stage, you have to go back to the beginning and start over. And it just kept happening over and over. It was like the fish would run out the line and he just had to fight it. And his hands were bleeding and he had to push his feet up against the gunwale. You know, his, his face smashed into the, the tuna on the side that he was, had, you know, that make him sick with the smell of it. And all of us became the same way around the edge of the scene, you know, sort of watching this man in his boat fighting this 
great fish, this dream he had. And um, I, at one point, I know it was the same for my younger sister. I wanted to like jump in and, and like start punching yeah. these guys, you know, and help them. But of course we couldn't, you know, because it's his boat and it's his fish to reel in. And, you know, that's, I could go on for days on that, but that's kind of what led me to that. That that's such a beautiful connection, and your your anecdote brings up the the point that it's the old man in the sea, and yet this novella, because of its language and its brevity, is usually the first book that young readers read. And so, are you looking at uh, Santiago at his persistence and? Uh, the the battle that he keeps up with the fish. Are you looking at that through your father's eyes? Are you looking at that through your own eyes as a young person and a young reader? Or does the book mean different things to you as a a, a youth or as an adult? Well, it does, you know, because now as I look back on it, as I look at it, you know, I had I had seen it through the the prism of a younger person looking towards an older person who struggled with something, you know, which was my father, and. um but now I see it more. I can see it in my own life because I, you know, I can see that, uh, you know, Santiago's wife was gone, you know, and we, there's just a brief mention of her and he took a photo off the wall because it made him too difficult to look at. But my, my wife passed away from cancer in 2016. Um, I think her, those are her butterflies right behind me on the wall, on a wall and there's photos in the, in the house and all that kind of stuff. And, um, I, I, I am not, I'm saddened by it, but I live with her in a way. And so, um, you know, I, I'm trying to think in the after, you know, for Santiago, it's after Africa. It's after his wife. It's after all this stuff. It's after the, the great, um, sort of for, foreshadowing of, of this battle where he has this, uh, you know, um, competition arm wrestling with this other guy. And, um, I'm sort of in that after a bit too. And I'm trying to create um, great art now that might house my my wife and I or our relationship in some ways so that I guess this is pushing towards immortality or finding what it is is not that so much, but it's connected to it. I guess what it is is I'm trying to create spaces so that other people might meet her and in a way fall in love with her. And, and so she'll be alive in this world, you know, and, um, but creating a great book is like building the Taj Mahal, you know, it's that fish in the water and it is life and death at that moment. Because if you, I think if you ever land that great fish, what's after that, you know? Um, so there's kind of a death of, of purpose in being alive. So it's, it's a tricky thing to decide to haul in that fish, you know, if you ever have the actual chance to do it. You know. <laughs> yes, and and then did did Santiago do it? Hmm. Uh, if he didn't bring it home, uh, <laughs> what was the what was the vi- yeah. what was the what's the difference between defeat and victory in in that in that novella? It's a, it's a, yeah. it's beautiful yeah. that Hemingway gives us those things <laughs> to wrestle with. Back after this, this episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. Michael and I are huge fans of the Hemingway Review. We always read it to see the latest scholarship. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org backslash journals. One True Podcast is excited to be sponsored by Kent State University Press and its Reading Hemingway series. 
which offers line-by-line annotation and commentary of every Hemingway book. Michael and I rely on these books heavily. Each book is authored by someone whose expertise is that particular book. I am proud to have the complete set, including the most recent one, Winner Take Nothing, which I was honored to edit with Susan Vandegrift and which features contributions from several former One True Podcast guests. For that book and the other great books in this series, please go to KentStateUniversityPress.com. Brian, you're actually a perfect person to talk about with One True Sentence, uh, especially given your poetry. Much mm-hmm. of your poetry uh, seems to have very short lines, mm-hmm. uh, very compact where it would seem that every word is, I mean, of course, every word is intentional, but every word has to carry some particular kind of meaning or power or purpose. Yeah. And the, in the sentence that you ch- that you um, chose from the old man in the sea, then the fish came alive with his death in him and rose out, rose high out of the water, showing all his great length and width and all his power and his beauty. We get the word and four mm-hmm. times. We get <laughs> his death. Uh, his power, his beauty, and his great length, and so it, it seems it seems like a a very intricate sentence for such yeah. a simple book, yeah, or seemingly simple book. Right? Well, I picked it in part because it's not the the the, the straight declarative, you know, that Hemingway is kind of right. known for as the boom that that one you can land foundation stone that holds everything else up, you know, but because I think because Hemingway knew. That this is a this is a moment where there's a breach in time and space and and in in the narrative too. This is the peak of the story, one, at least one of the peaks, but probably the peak. Maybe there's an emotional peak that comes later, but there's because of this. But um, there's a rupture, and that rupture is is a kind of conversation when our lives are are in the in the presence of the sublime, and I think that's where his sentence structure had to break open a little bit and you see big concept words like beauty and, and, and death and that, you know, they, those words are throughout the book here and there, but he uses them very sparingly. It's, he's much more about the line and tackle kind of thing. You know, it's about the, the gas yes. and the, you know, all the, the, the physical stuff of his life and his body. But there are those moments of the sublime. And, and I think that's why the, the it's, it's a lyrical, there's this, this like he knows he can he wants to hold that moment and freeze time because he needs that fish to hang in the air so that we can be, we can see it. And, and time itself has stopped for a moment because these two great beings are in conversation with each other. They're seeing each other. You know? And the next sentence, the next sentence, uh, the second true sentence is uh, he seemed to hang in the air above the old man in the skiff. Right. So it's, it's essentially frozen time. Uh, and I'm really interested by your remark about that, because when you write about war, mm. how do you capture the the pace of war? You know, um, I was thinking something about that, but I was also thinking along lines of um, Hemingway. And does it show up in, in this book here, Bullet? Because I obviously was reading him prior to going in, you know, locking and loading, crossing the border and going in. And near the end of my first book, I have a poem called uh, Night in Blue. Um, I don't know if we have time to read a poem. Oh, oh definitely. Yeah? Definitely. Okay. So I'll read this poem and then I'll ask the the audience, anyone listening, to try to pick out the sentence that I think is maybe as, as close as I might get to a one true sentence. Um, it's called Night in Blue. At 7,000 feet and looking back, 
running lights blacked out under the wings and America waiting. A year of my life disappears at midnight, the sky a deep viridian, the house lights below small as match heads burned down to embers. Has this year made me a better lover? Will I understand something of hardship, of loss? Will a lover sense this in my kiss or touch? What do I know of redemption or sacrifice? What will I have to say of the dead, that it was worth it, that any of it made sense? I have no words to speak of war. I never dug the graves in Talafar. I never held the mother crying in Ramadi. I never lifted my friend's body when they carried him home. I have only the shadows under the leaves to take with me, the quiet of the desert, the low fog of Balad, orange groves with ice forming on the rinds of fruit. I have a woman crying in my ear late at night when the stars go dim, moonlight and sand as a resonance of the dust of bones and nothing more. So, you know, I look at that line, um, I have no words to speak of war. And I, my editor, when I first, when they took the book and then when we got into the editing stage, it became an interesting conversation because she pointed out that line. She says, you can't say that. After all that you've said in this book, you can't have this line. And I was like, that's probably the truest line I have in the entire yeah. book. You know, I can't not write it with them. <laughs> that, no, that is, you know, Brian, what we talked about uh, other times on this uh, podcast is that, chapter in Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried called How to Tell a True War Story, where the entire, and of course, Tim O'Brien was extremely complimentary of, of your work. Uh, but the notion that how do you describe, and I was thinking about this as I was reading your poetry, how do you, are you writing for somebody like me, who's interested in the, the war experience, but who has not experienced it firsthand? Or are you writing it for the people who, who have shared your experience? You know, the poems that hear bullet were written in my notebooks when I was in Iraq. And um, if I sort of parachute down into that moment and look at this guy who's writing these poems, um, he'd already gone to grad school and got an MFA in poetry. Or I can just talk about myself. I had. <laughs> and and I had, um, I, you know, over the course of my life up to that point, I'd been a machinist, putting myself through college. I'd done a wide variety of jobs, but poetry was a through line. And I'd written about I think it was about seven manuscripts before that on different subjects, very wide ranging. And um, a couple of those manuscripts were decent. I'd sent them out and they became semifinalists or finalists at prizes and stuff like that. So I was trying to get them out there, but they just were continually rejected. And I'm glad for that now. But that guy who's writing in his notebook in Iraq has already had seven books that the world didn't want to read. And after about book four, you start thinking, well, Maybe that's just not going to be a thing that happens for me, you know. Like uh, I'm in day, I'm in day 45 or day 50 out on the boat. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so, like, that's right. you know, I, I've got to, um, you know. But I, so I thought, you know, maybe I'll just. But it's it's what I do. I, I love to write books and I like to write poetry and and I need to and um, that need that is that that propulsion that's underneath it that makes the words come out. So it's I know so I'm it drifting. sounds like. No, it sounds like it's an internal, it's internally motivated and you're writing for yourself as opposed to an, a specific reader. And now after the experience with the first book, it's very different now because um, there is a potential audience. And I know that if I write a book, there's a possibility that's with some. So I have to work, I have to work now to sort of leave everyone outside of my head so that I can just write into the unknown. And, and, 
And it's not too hard because I'm kind of addicted to that space where I'm writing and the world falls away and I'm inside. I'm a very cinematic writer. So it's sort of like going into a daydream and being in that space and then finding the language that hopefully sort of feels like it uh, moves through me and onto the page. That's when that happens, it's a kind of magic and that's what I go for. But then editing and revising, that's where the reader comes back in because I start to think, if why do I want to share this with another human being? What will it do for someone else? And if, if I think it might have some kind of value, then I think not, then I have to s- separate myself from it and what I need from the poem. Cause I've already got that. I have to think, yeah. what does the poem need? And then if I can figure that out, then I'll share it with someone. Yeah. Very interesting. The, the I wanted to go back, Brian, to the quote from Hemingway's journalism that you used as an epigraph to your uh, to your poem in here bullet uh in the the quote is this is a s- strange new kind of war where you learn just as much as you're able to believe and that seems like a very uh elliptical quote uh, wh- what did you what did that mean to you as a, as a as a soldier and what did you um re- why did you respond to it you know, when I first read it, we hadn't entered the combat zone. So to me, it it had a kind of, it has a ring of wisdom to it, but I didn't know what that would mean until I got there. And then once I was there, um, I guess it means that at some point, um, a, a child might throw a hand grenade into a room or an old man might just shake his head in resignation as we pass by or... Um, or um, someone, another soldier in another platoon, I might hear it over the radio that they found an infant on a blanket under an, under an orange tree in February. And then, but it's a dead infant. And then as we drive down the road, I might see a man and woman, woman walking very slowly and solemnly, the woman with a blanket in her arms, the man with a shovel. Mm. You know, it's like these um, reports of um, food gas, which is a sticky gel of homemade napalm that was sometimes... Uh, reported to be used for booby traps and things like that or different attacks. So I, I guess um, you know, it's, a, it's a string of these moments that um, – and the signature of war changes too, I suppose. So in a more practical sense, each war has its own kind of signature. And this, the, the war that I was in started with the signature of the, the roadside bomb, the suicide bomber, and it switched after I left to the era of drone warfare. And that's where we're sort of still at a little bit, is in the era of the drone, the, the sort of distanced attack. And that, that goes all the way back from the beginning, which is part of the, of the fact of warfare is um, called standoff distance. And it's kind of like, who can throw a rock farther? Because if I can throw yeah. it, if I can stand outside of the, stand, the, the, the distance of a projectile towards me from someone else, then I can throw a rock and harm them. Then I can exert power over that person. And we've got it so far now that a drone can be across the curvature of the earth and we can attack people that we don't even see. Yeah. So Brian, does the literature of Iraq and the literature of Vietnam have a progression that you could point to that because the war, those two wars are different, that the two generations of writers capture those wars differently? Maybe because um, I think, and I'm not sure if this shows up in my poetry so much, but um, it seems like in Vietnam, from my understanding and from the literature, I get a sense that during the day, American troops could kind of move about 
and they could see the world. But at night, they kind of had to hunker down and and take whatever came their way, you know, because they couldn't see it. And we, it's it's, it's kind of flipped. And um, now the, the contemporary American military can see everything at night with night vision goggles and um, lasers and things. You know, just it's pretty incredible how much can be seen. I, I, I could see people in their windows looking out very carefully with the, the blinds just pulled back a little bit. And they didn't know that there are little red dots on their chests just moving around and that there's a big floodlight of light on them. But they're looking out at this dark street trying to see if there's something out there because they heard something. And there's like a disco ball of light on the house two houses over where, the, where a sniper team is up on top. And they put this light there so we can see it as a beacon and know, oh, that's where the snipers are. And the helicopters that oh. come in off station flying way above have these sweeping kind of things where they can pick up the reflections off our helmets and on the flags on our shoulders that show them that those are American troops or friendly troops down below. So it's like it's completely different than it m might have been before, you know. That's fascinating. Uh, Brian, would you please read your one true sentence one more time for us? I'd be honored. Then the fish came alive with his death in him and rose high out of the water, showing all his great length and width and all his power and his beauty. Brian Turner, thank you so much for joining us on One True Podcast and playing One True Sentence with us. This was so fascinating and so great. That's a joy. It. I'm glad to be here and I'm a fan. Thanks so much. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on HemingwaySociety.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at one true pod. That's the number one true pod. Or email us at one true pod at gmail.com. Our show is supported by the Hemingway Society, the English Department of the University of Evansville, and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast. 